A special welcome back. Light Mishpacha, Rabbi and Mrs. In honor of Michal's engagement to Devorah. Very exciting. Mazel Tov, and we should share in many simchas. Topic this evening is Life is Now. Before any words of introduction, I want to jump into a Rashi. And I think we'll use this Rashi as a springboard for, uh, for the entire shear. The beginning of the Parsha starts off that on the eighth day of the inauguration of the Mishkan, this is the first of Nisan, it's a momentous time, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation, and there are special karbonos to be brought. The Yomer Moshe al Aaron, Moshe says to Aaron, Karav el Mizbeach, come close to the altar, and bring your sin offering and your elevation offering to atone for you and the nation. So Rashi is bothered by the, the way that Moshe is speaking to Aaron. Come close to the Mizbeach. Why is there a need for him to tell him to come close? Just give him instructions. Bring the, uh, bring the karbonos. Do your thing. So Rashi explains that Shehaya Aaron Bosh. Aaron was actually embarrassed. He didn't feel comfortable. Bosh v'yore legeshes. He was embarrassed and he was afraid to come close. Amr lo Moshe. So Moshe said to his brother, Lama ato Bosh? Why are you embarrassed? Well, what's holding you back? Lekach nivcharto. You were created for this. You were chosen for this. Lama tabosh. Why are you embarrassed? Lekach nivcharto. You were chosen for this. So it's a strange back and forth. Some of the mefarshim quote the analogy of a of a young lady who marries the king, and, and she feels inferior, she feels, who am I to be the, the wife of the king? And uh, her sister tells her, listen, this is what your job is, this is who you are, you were chosen for this task. Don't be embarrassed. What, what bothers me about this Rashi, is it sounds like he's saying, you were chosen for this. Now this was one thing that Aaron was about to do. How many other things did Aaron do in the Mishkan? He had a pretty busy job. It was more than nine to five. He was working, you know, after hours. He was very, very busy doing many important things in the Mishkan. Lekach nivcharta. It sounds like Moshe was telling Aaron, you were chosen for this. What exactly is going on? That's the Rashi we're going to start with. That's the Rashi we're going to end with. We have in the parsha the famous story of Nadav and Avihu. We know they were the two sons of Aaron. They were massive giants in Torah and spirituality. And we have this famous yet perplexing episode that takes place where they bring in an Eish Zar. They come into the Mishkan on this wondrous day, the day of the inauguration. They bring a foreign fire and they're killed on the spot. 
The Torah tells us, that the sons of Aro, Nodav, and Avihu, each took their fire pan, and they placed the fire on it, and they placed incense on the pan, and they brought this foreign fire. It was not called for, they were not instructed to do so. They brought an Eish Zara Asher Lotziva Osam that was not commanded. So everyone focuses on the question why? What did they do wrong? What I'd like to do, and this is hopefully all going to help us in an expanded understanding of Rashi, I want to focus on a different question, which is what did they do right? They clearly died that day, and they clearly made a massive mistake. But I want to focus on the thing that they did right. In order to do that, we'll have to start focusing on what they did wrong. Now the Archaim comes along, and he's bothered by the question, why does it say, B'nai Aaron Nadavavihu, the sons of Aaron? We know they were his sons. Why does the Torah repeat that here? So explains the Archaim, the Torah is actually revealing to us what they did wrong. It's, it's showing us their mistake. It describes them as B'nai Aaron, Yertzel Lahodiyah, because the Torah is teaching us, Makom Teusam, the place of their mistake. That because Liyosam Kohanim, because they were Kohanim, they were the sons of Aaron, Shalehem Taivas Havoda, they had a desire for service in the Mishkan. That was their whole life, serving Hashem, having the special role of being the, the priest, the, the Kohanim. So they had a Taiva, and that's why they brought in this foreign fire. A Taiva Savoda, desire for service in the Mishkan. The Emekdavar, Rav Natali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, hundreds of years later, says a similar point. He says, perhaps when the Torah tells us they brought in fire, obviously it's true on a literal level, but it's also telling us something metaphysical, something spiritual. They came in with an inner fire. They came in with a fire ablaze with the love of Hashem. And the Torah, although Hashem loves when we have that level of dveikus and connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's obviously precious in His eyes, but they weren't instructed to do anything like this. This was not the mitzvah that was given, and that was their mistake. So both the Orachayim and the Emekdavr seem to be saying, what was their massive, massive mistake? Taivas Havoda. They had a desire for serving God. What's difficult to understand about the Orachayim is that if you look in the Gemara and you look in the Midrashim, there's a lot of discussion on what their mistake was, and you'll find no place in Chazal that says what the Orachayim says. There are different suggestions. Maybe they should have consulted each other, and that was their mistake. Maybe they should have consulted Moshe and Aaron. Maybe they went into the Mishkan inebriated, they were drinking. Many different interpretations as to what they did wrong. 
But you will not find anywhere in Chazal any source that says it was because they're Taivas HaAvodah. So how could the Orachayim come along hundreds and hundreds of years later and say something totally different? I think the answer is simple. The Orachayim is not telling us what they did wrong. The Orachayim is explaining what was the Shorish, what was the root, what was the underlying issue that led them to make their mistake. What was their mistake? Go look in the Gemara, go look in the, 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 the Midrashim, many interpretations. But he's saying, what was at the core? What led them to make this mistake was they were ablaze with love of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They were so enthused by the moment they couldn't hold themselves back. Now even with that love, they should have kept themselves in check and they should have been living with the mantra of, we follow halacha. If we didn't get this particular command from Hashem, we're not going to make up our own Judaism. But the Arachayim and the Ambedavar, I think they're sharing with us, the source of their mistake was coming from Taivas Havoda. So what did they do right? They appreciated the moment. What did they do right? They had an inner fire that they wanted to participate, they wanted to contribute. They should have kept it in check. They should have channeled that fire according to the dictates and the, and the instructions of Halacha. But that's what they did right. We find the same thing in the Haftorah. Haftorah tells the, the amazing story about David and Michal, that when they were getting back the Aaron, David was so excited about finally having the Aaron back in the possession of Klai Yisrael. The Navi tells us, V'david macharker b'chol oz lifnei Hashem, that he was dancing with all of his strength before Hashem. Hashem David, the Aaron Hashem was coming into the city of David. And Michal, the daughter of Shol, was looking down from the window, seeing this whole procession. And there she sees her husband. He's dancing and he's leaping in front of Hashem. And I think this is the Hebrew way of saying she was cringing. She was looking down, this is my husband, the king, and he's making a complete fool out of himself. What are you doing? You're supposed to be dignified. You're supposed to have nobility. You're, you're the royalty and you're dancing like a, like a madman? She was cringing. So, he comes back in on this beautiful day to bless his household. And the Michal Bashol, again, this is the second time it's pointing out, she's the daughter of Shol, the daughter of King Saul. Now we know that as well. It's clearly for a reason. She comes out to greet her husband. And he's smiling, he's waiting for a big embrace. What a wonderful day. The Tomar. What a wondrous day. Here you are, revealing parts of your leg as you're jumping up and down in front of the maidservants, like one of the empty people. What are you doing, David? Harsh words from his wife. And he fires back. It was in front of Hashem, Hashem, by the way, who chose me over your dad. 
I was dancing in front of Hashem. Visichachti lifnei Hashem, and I was rejoicing in front of Hashem. So the conversation at first glance is very troublesome. It, it sounds like a, a normal marriage. It sounds like she's criticizing her husband, and then he can't hold himself back, so he's got to poke fun at her father. You know, Hashem who chose me over your dad, obviously I know what I'm doing, he didn't know what he was doing. The only problem is we know we're talking about David and Michal. And that was not the kind of conversation they would usually have, most likely. So what exactly is the back and forth? And why does it refer to her as Michal Bashol? We know whose daughter she is. So the doc comes along and he says, there's a lot more going on in this conversation. She wasn't just embarrassed that David was, was jumping around. It was much more sophisticated. Michal was Ba-Shol. She was the daughter of Shol. What was the unique quality of Shol Melech? He was an Onav and he was a Tznuah. He was humble and he was modest. So she says to David, Beis Abba malchus no mishelcha. My father's malchus, my father's kingship was better than yours. For them, it would be sacrilegious to show even part of their hand or part of their ankle to anyone. There's a level of royalty, there's dignity, you have to conduct yourself. You're the king, you're Melech Yisrael. So basically she was saying, I was brought up with this training. Is it true that Shaul made mistakes? Of course he made mistakes. But he goes down in history as being a tzaddik. He was a righteous human being, and he, he was exceptional in his modesty. So the one thing that Michal inherited from her family was the Mida of Tznias. She was super modest. How could you do something like this, David? It's going against everything that I stand for. What was David's response? That Hashem chose me over your father? The Radak explains, David was telling her, I know your father was very into Tzniyas. He was very humble, he was very modest. He carried himself with dignity, and I respect that. But sometimes you could take a good thing too far. Sometimes you could be so into something that you almost lose sense of where does this fit into the bigger picture? Where does this fit into what my job is in this world? I could be so into a particular mitzvah that it overshadows other things I could and should be doing. David was telling Michal, I appreciate and respect where you're coming from, but I think you're overdoing it right now. The call of the hour is to dance and not to be restrained, not to be constricted whatsoever. That's the call of the hour. Modesty needs to be pushed aside right now. What's the connection between the half Torah? Now, there are many connections, but I think on a deeper level, one connection between this episode with David and Michal and Nodav and Avihu is that they both made a mistake, but they both did something right as well. Nodav and Avihu had Taivas Havoda, they had this passion, they had the fire, they should have kept it in check, they made a mistake. Michal had this amazing midah of tzniyah. She was so concerned about being a mensch and being dignified. She made a mistake though. She went too far with it. And you find this all the time. Right? Sometimes we get so into something that this becomes Judaism. I, I could give a few examples, but I probably shouldn't. 
<laughs> I don't want to offend any, anybody, but, but we see it all the time within ourselves that something could be so important, this overshadows other areas of halacha and hashkafa. So the connection between Michal and Nodav and Avihu is they both did something right, but they, they didn't have the perspective. It wasn't with Das Torah, it wasn't with the guidelines of halacha. People have asked me before, having conversations about, you know, what takes place in Eretz Yisrael and the relationship between the religious Jews and the non-religious Jews, and even amongst the, the Frum Jews in Israel, there's obviously many different colors and flavors. Why is it that when I go to Eretz Yisrael, I feel the tension, you could cut it with a knife, I feel it amongst Jews, but yet, here in Boca Raton, Florida, or anywhere else in America, oftentimes, live and let live. I don't care what you're doing, you don't care what I'm doing. There, there's so much more tolerance, there's so much more acceptance. Why can't they learn from us in Israel? So what's the difference between America and Israel? I think there are a few differences. Number one is proximity. <laughs> when you're living on top of people with six million Jews in a, in a place this big, it's a very, very different conversation. Number two is when you have Jews who are in charge of the government, and it's not just we're all strangers in a foreign land, but we want certain policies in certain ways, that also creates friction. But I think there's a third factor. Oftentimes we don't appreciate the difference between tolerance and apathy. We don't have tolerance for each other here. It's not that we're more loving or more kind or more generous or more accepting. We just don't care that much. We just don't care that much. I'm doing my thing and I'm happy with it. You're doing your thing and that's fine as well. You know, whatever, different flavors, it's all good. In Eretz Yisrael, it's a different culture and if you've been there, you know what I mean. But there's more, path, there's more passion and there's less apathy. It's not that we have more tolerance. So what we learn from Michal and what we learn from Nadav and Avi is we have to have the fire. But we also learn it has to be according to the guidelines of Torah. This is why historically, whenever there's been a new movement or a revolution in Klal Yisrael, now obviously if it's something that's totally deviating from authentic Torah Judaism, we don't look at it. But sometimes you'll have movements like the Hasidic movement hundreds of years ago. In the, in the early 1800s, like the Musar movement in the mid-1800s. And you'll have massive people, Gedole Olam, who were involved in these revolutions, and yet, they're always met with opposition. That's a very healthy thing. That means that in the DNA of Klal Yisrael, we appreciate Aish, we appreciate the passion, and we love the fact that you want to make changes, but we want to make sure you're not making the same mistake as Nadav and Avihu. We want to make sure you're not getting into one thing to the, to the sacrifice of other things like Micha. That's been our Mesur in Klal Yisrael. Having the fire though can really make the difference between mediocrity and greatness. There's an amazing letter written by the Chazanish uh, about a young man who was about to go into a particular yeshiva 
And they wanted the Chazanish just to describe him a little bit. They heard some things about him from his previous school, and they were a little bit hesitant, a little bit nervous. Who is this kid? Sounds like a troublemaker. So the Chazanish explains, he says, In Yono Bal Kishron, this kid happens to be a Bal Kishron, he's very bright, he's gifted. Yesh bo gam ne'imos, he's also sweet. There's a chayin, there's a pleasantness. Hu gam mutrud min it happens to be he's distracted with the yetzahara, meaning to say he's involved with things that he should not be involved with. Kederech bal kishron er, like the way of any smart person who's alive. Because he's a bal kishron, because he has, he has this brilliance to him, it's not surprising that he's also distracted by his Yetzirah. Often those things go together. If you're dull and you're not feeling anything, so maybe you're not as mutrad min I'm not as distracted from all the other physical attractions, but I also don't have that same potential. He says, You need to watch over him carefully. You have to have a good hashkocha on the kid. But you should know, and here's an amazing line, and I think it's a, a source of comfort for us who have children who are inspired children. But it's only through these types of people do you find real greatness. Right? The kid can't sit for more than a second. What are we going to do with him? Says the Chazanish, you have to watch over him carefully. You have to give him what he needs. But you should also know, Dafka elu asidim legadlus. He has amazing potential. Rabbi Chonor Wasserman wrote a pamphlet describing what's going to happen in the times leading up to Mashiach. And he has a famous piece where he speaks about the idols of our times. I have here just a few lines translated for us. Rabbi Chonor writes, Let us now review all the idols which were worshipped in the last hundred years. The enlightenment of Berlin, or better foolishness, promised a great salvation. As soon as the breeze of liberalism began to blow, the Jews hastened to stand in the foremost ranks of its supporters. After liberalism had made its exit, they turned to democracy, socialism, communism, and to the other isms which have come down upon our generation in such profusion. To these idols they made sacrifices of blood and money, and were betrayed by all of them. Not even one justified the faith that had been pinned on it. Not only that, concludes Rav Ochanan, but all these isms died a sudden death and vanquished and vanished abruptly. See, in the olden days, people were, were into things. People were into causes. They were fighting for things. And if I'm not into Judaism, I'm into socialism, I'm into communism. I'm a little bit embarrassed to share this, but I'm also proud of it. My grandfather, from Russia, initially he was a communist, and he was also a card-carrying atheist, literally. He had a card in his pocket. But that was the kind of mensch we had back then. I might not be into Judaism, but I'm into something. I'm into a different ism. We now live in a whole different age. We live in a time of apathy. We live in a time where there's indulgence, there's indifference, there's affluence, and therefore there's apathy. 
I don't care about anything. I'm not even mutrad min hayetzer. I'm not distracted by all the things that are out there in the world. As long as I have my device and it's working well, I'm fine. I don't need to do anything. I have no motivation. I have nothing pushing me. You look at the secular world and, and, and you hear this. You hear this conversation about the, the millennials, kids who are in their 20s and even in their 30s. The whole idea of, listen, one of these days I'm going to do something and make a lot of money and you know, live an amazing life. I'm 38 right now. I haven't gone to school yet for that. But I plan to. It, it's, it's all in, it's all in my, uh, my aspirations. So we live in a time where we don't care about the isms anymore. We don't care about anything that's pulling us away. There's just apathy. There's an amazing example of apathy that we find earlier on in Sefer Shmuel. This is the first time in history that Aaron was taken captive. And when it was being brought back, this is well before David HaMelech, the, uh, the Pasek tells us, that in Be'i Shemesh you had the people harvesting the wheat in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes. And they saw the Aaron returning from the Flishtim, and they were happy to see it. Right? Can you picture the scene? The, the sun is setting over the fields, the valley of Be'i Shemesh. You have all the people working hard in the field, they lift up their eyes and, oh, the Aaron is back. Yes. Comes along the Malbim. He says as follows. Lo simchu karoi b'simcha shel mitzvah. They didn't have the proper joy, the joy of the mitzvah. Lahaniach melachte mulahavio al chedaharoso. If they really cared, they would have dropped their, their instruments, dropped all their tools, and they would have joined the procession, bringing the Aaron back to the place where it was going to stay. Rather, their simcha was as if they were seeing something new, something that was mafli ene roim, something that was cool. I never saw that before. So what they should have done is they should have dropped everything, ran together with their whole families, cheering and singing and dancing and, and embracing the return of the Aaron. Instead what happened was, they did this. They're working, they look up. Oh, that is so cool, it's back. I, I feel so much more fulfilled, you know. Baruch Hashem. All right. That's apathy. That's not learning from Nadav and Avihu. That's not learning from Micha. What's the basic cure? Right, we live in a world of apathy. We live in a world we don't care about isms. We just, we just are. How do we make sure we could emulate Nodav and Aviyu and Michal in a healthy, productive way? Enemy number one against fire, against inner fire and passion, is the thought process that we have tomorrow. I don't have to do this now. Listen, there are many things I could be doing. If I don't feel a sense of urgency, then there's never going to be the ignition of the flame. We need a sense of urgency. 
And when we live in a world where everything can happen tomorrow, and there's nothing, me, nothing making me focus right here and now, then I'll never feel it. The famous words of the Mishnah in Perkyovos, Im the Mishnah tells us, this is Hillel, if not now, then when? So the way the Rabbeinu Yonah understands those words, he explains that a person should never say, Now the truth is, I, I, haven't, I haven't gone to shul in a while, I haven't attended a shir in a long time, I haven't seen my wife in a few days, but I have a lot to do now, let me just finish this off. And tomorrow I'm going to have more time, tomorrow I'll go to shul, tomorrow I'll go to the shir, tomorrow... I'll, uh, I'll be with my family. Why shouldn't we say that, says the Rebbe Because tomorrow may never come. It's a scary thought. We may not have as much time as we think. But even if it does come, and I'll be able to accomplish whatever I didn't do today, I'll do it tomorrow. I can never make up today. So I'll learn tomorrow, that's wonderful. And I could finish the Masechta tomorrow, that's amazing. But that means I lost yesterday. You can never make up a day. Without a sense of urgency, we will never have a sufficient fire to accomplish. The Sif Sechaim of Chaim Friedlander, he speaks about the, the Midah of Menuchas HaNefesh, the, the trait of tranquility and serenity, living with a sense of equilibrium, he has one line where he defines what it means to be alive. This is a line we have to memorize and, and keep with us at all times. Explains of Chaim Friedlander, Metzius HaHove, the reality of the present, Shehi Keheref Ayin is like the blink of an eye. He kol Metzius HaChayim, that is the all reality of life. Meaning to say, every second, which really relates back to a few weeks ago, we spoke about the, the precious gift of Zman, right? the, the gift of time. Now in the moment for this fleeting second that we're conscious right here and now, this defines what life is. And therefore, says Chaim Friedlander, we have to try to juice it. We have to try to, as, as uh, what was his name? The guy who lived on the pond for a few years, as Thoreau, I think that was the name of the pond, <laughs> as Thoreau said, to live deliberately and to suck out the marrow of life. Rechaim Friedlander, Lahavdil, is saying, that's Metziah Sachaim. The reality of life is this fleeting moment. And he goes on to explain that you have people in different stages of life who can never be present based on one of two factors. He says, you find by older people, they live in the past. And if you have the opportunity to speak to someone who is not, not doing much now, they're old, they're not able to, to get out that much, a lot of what they talk about is what they did 40 and 50 and 60 years ago. I had the amazing opportunity to, to schmooze with someone who was in World War II. He was an American soldier. He lives here in Boca. I've actually gone a couple of times. I brought my son Avraham one time. And uh, the stories that he has are unbelievable. Things that, that you would see in a movie and think, oh, that didn't really happen. 
And he, and he has this amazing memory, unless he's totally lying. I don't think that's the case. But he has an amazing memory of describing it play by play. But his whole life now at 93 years old is living as an 18-year-old American soldier. That the one time I did bring my son there, Avraham, who's seven years old, so he started telling him one particular story. There was this dam right before the Battle of the Bulge, and the Germans were trying to explode the dam. And if they were successful, thousands of American soldiers would have died. So he, together with five other guys, were given the mission to go up. There are two separate towers. Each tower has about four Germans to raid each tower, kill the Germans before they explode the dam. So he, he gave us this, like, play-for-play, play, very vivid description of throwing the grenades inside first and then running in with their guns and one guy wasn't quite dead he was moving his hand trying to get his revolver so my friend with a big rifle shot him four times in the head and <laughs> my son is sitting there like <laughs> there's a little bit much I think but the amazing thing is Baruch Hashem for that past because that's really what he lives every day Reb Chaim Friedlander says however as we get older, we can't allow ourselves to live in the past. Because really what's happening now is just as significant. It's just as real. It's just as meaningful as what I did 20, 40, 60 years ago. I'm not as needed. I'm not as productive. I'm not out there in the world. But every moment we're alive, we have a tafkid. See, we make the mistake that we look at life as... I have a mission throughout my lifetime. We look at it as one big glob. I have uh, this lifetime to, to accomplish mitzvahs and to learn Torah. That's not the Das Torah. That's not how we should be viewing it. We view it as every day is a new day. We wash our hands in the morning, explains the Rashba. Why do you have to wash your hands and, and say a special bracha? Because we're a Bria Chadasha, we're a new creation. When we say the first thing that comes out of our mouth in the morning, I acknowledge, I am grateful before you. Thank you for returning my neshama, with compassion. And then we conclude by saying, Your emuna, your faith, God in me, is massive. Revolba explains that we're saying, the fact that you restored my neshama, the fact that you've brought back consciousness, and you've given me an opportunity for another day of avoda, that means that you have faith in me. That means you have a special task for me to do. It's not a lifetime. It's today. It's this moment. Tezer Chaim Friedlander, sometimes when we're younger, we make the opposite mistake. We live in a dream world. We're always thinking about all the amazing things we're going to accomplish. And that's true when it comes to Gashmias, about all the money I'm going to make. And then when you get the job, it's about getting the next level. And once I get the next level, it's about finally, when am I going to retire? And when I retire, it's about finally, uh, and then it's over. We're living in a dream world, never living in reality. But that's also true when it comes to spirituality. Chaim Friedlander says sometimes we could be distracted by having spiritual goals. Stop thinking about all the Gemara you want to learn and just focus on this line right in front of your face. Stop thinking about all the amazing things you're going to do because that's not going to do anything for you right now. You have to have a plan. You have to have a, a basic way of getting to higher levels. 
But don't let that distract you from the here and now. We are always getting ready to live, but never living. That's public enemy number one against emulating Nodav, Avihu, and Michal in a healthy way. I want to conclude with something from Ramosha, and I want to get back to Rashi. Ramosha Feinstein is bothered by the question that it says of the Yom Hashmini on the eighth day, Kara Moshe Laaron Levonov. Moshe called out to Aaron and his sons. So Ramosha is bothered by the fact they were there together for seven days. There is a process of the inauguration. We've been here together. Now comes along day eight. Okay, guys, we're going to do this. You could imagine Aaron and his sons, they were taken aback. Like, yeah, we're here. We've been with you the whole time. Everything okay, Moshe? Why would he have to call them to action? Says Moshe Feinstein, this is giving us guidance for how we need to live our own life. Every mitzvah we do, before we do it, we need to call ourselves into action. It's true, Ard and his sons were there for the last seven days, but Moshe was telling them, before day eight rolls around, before we officially put up the Mishkan, I want you to feel like you're coming here for the first time. This should not be habitual. This should not be just something you've been doing. Call yourself into action. We have to try our best that every mitzvah should be as if it's new. Now how do we do that? It's not new. I've been doing this for many, many years. Well, if we don't call ourselves into action, if we don't focus on it before we do it, we have no chance of viewing it with any level of freshness. Explains your Moshe Feinstein, the only way we could view a mitzvah as something new and novel and exciting is if we take a moment to focus on what we're going to do before we do it. And here's the key line. You have to view it as, there's nothing else in the world I have to do besides this mitzvah. This is the only obligation I have. Getting back to Rashi. Moshe sees that Aaron is embarrassed and he says, Lama Tabosh, why are you embarrassed? Lekach Nivcharta. You were chosen for this. Our question was, he wasn't chosen for this particular carbon. He had many things to do. Perhaps the message of Moshe was, right now, this is all you have to do. Nothing else exists. Lekach Nivcharta. You were chosen for this day, the Yom Hashmini, on the inauguration. This is all you have to think about. You have nothing else in the radar. This is your mitzvah. And with those words, Moshe Rabbeinu was giving Aaron, but he was also giving all of us the ability to rise above apathy, the ability to ignite the fire within, which is really the advice of Moshe Feinstein. We have to focus on everything we do, which is a very, very difficult task, but at least it should be something we're striving for. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? There are so many things that keep us back from feeling that passion. Apathy and sometimes fear, sometimes embarrassment. I can't let myself go because what are they going to say? We're afraid of failure, we're afraid of rejection, sometimes we're afraid of success. One of my daughters had a birthday party. 
where they played freeze dance. I was the entertainment for the party. So what I would do is I would stop the music, right? The way freeze dance works, everyone dances, and as soon as the music stops, you have to freeze. And if you move even a little bit, then you're out. So as we're playing freeze dance, I'm noticing out of like 12 girls, there are a handful of girls that aren't really dancing. They're kind of like, like doing this. Why? <laughs> now you have some girls who are just like losing it and jumping and doing cartwheels, you know, and then the music stops, okay, I'm frozen. But some girls were barely moving because they were so afraid that if the music stops and I'm not able to freeze, I'm out. We have to do the dance in life. If we're not living with passion, we're not really living. If we're not living in the moment, if we're not being merakes, we're not focusing everything on the task before me, or on the person who's sitting in front of me, the relationship that's at hand, the mitzvah that's at hand, if we're not living with the mantra of lekach nivcharta, I was chosen for this moment, then we're not really dancing. Have a wonderful Shabbos.